The world is never quite what we think it is. No matter how much we read or what we think we know, it is forever a weirder and more wondrous place than we can possibly imagine. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Josiah Bancroft. His stunning and genre-defying Books of Babel series comes to a close with his latest novel, The Fall of Babel. Josiah and I discuss the perils of social media, approaching prose with a poet's ear, and how the strongest characters can originate from their flaws. And now, let's skip ahead to the good part. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Josiah. It's so great to have you here on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's only appropriate because technically a good part of the reason why the Fantasy Inn blog formed in the first place was we wanted to figure out a way to get our hands on the Hod King earlier. <laughs> so we've definitely had some vicious interblogger fights trying to get your books ahead of time. You, you know, if I can bring people together and then tear them apart, I'm happy. That's, that's all yes, I ever well, wanted. Mission accomplished. Uh, very thematic probably for the book series as well. Yeah, that's, um, that's what I do. With, But yeah, so jumping right into things, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Yeah, I think uh, my uh, sort of romance with the genre is pretty typical. I was a young boy who was dissatisfied with what he perceived in the mirror and, uh, you know, enjoyed the escapism that uh, fantasy offered. You know, I I, I did split my time growing up between uh, science fiction and fantasy. But when I started writing, I, I dove right into fantasy because I felt, felt like uh, it required less research. Um, and that was something that really appealed to me as somebody who was uh, lazy. So, you know, I got into it for the dialogue. Uh, I like writing dialogue between, you know, dwarves and elves and humans and uh, ligers. And so that, that was what uh, initially called to me is that um, I didn't have to know, like, the escape velocity of planets or how orbits work. I could just make crap up. And that's, that's what I did. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people get into the genre. Not, maybe I shouldn't speak for a lot of people, but I think it's pretty common that when you get into fantasy, there's that appeal of escape that, that calls to a lot of people. Especially like, yeah, you know, as a, I would say, a homely child uh, living in Mobile, <laughs> Alabama, without much to do, and was uh, unpopular seems too soft a word. Uh, and so I, I was one to retreat into my room and, and into my own little worlds and. After a while doing that, it just seemed natural to write them down. Yeah, and uh, rumor has it that you and your friend Ian worked on writing down one of those epic fantasies when you were around 12 or so years old. So what can you tell us about the quest for Mordo Angus? Um, It's sort of challenging to start off by writing a fanfic of an original idea, but I think that's essentially what we did. You know, it was was awful, naturally. Uh, It was mostly concerned with the two protagonists who were uh, in the original draft named Josiah and Ian, because we were, uh, again, very imaginative children, finding friendships with girls and maybe more. So it was, it was a smooching book. There were dragons and magic gems, but that was all just window dressing towards, you know, to, to, to frame the, the smooch. What really, you know, it's, it's funny, even then I, I couldn't quite even imagine myself, you know, being appealing to a, a, a woman. So uh, it, it never really went anywhere. So it was, it was not a successful sort of uh, uh, fantasy, but uh, there were there were ooh, I don't know like three hundred thousand words. It was it was 
Uh, wow. Very thorough. Yeah. That's that's impressive. <laughs> it is, and I, I still have it on a uh, one of those like like floppy disks. At least forty four chapters of the I think uh, sixty that I landed on. But you know, I can't I can't access it, which is for the best because I, I'm still a little sleep at night. Um, I'm sure it was all dreadful. Yeah, uh, my first fantasy that I tried to write, I think uh, I was like maybe eight or nine or something uh, and did not make it 300,000 words. I think I made it maybe 3,000 words. I think it started with the memorable line of the year is 2020 and dogs and cats have revealed themselves to the humans. So make with that premise what you will. But my eight-year-old self was very excited by that idea. Yeah, that, that honestly, that, that has legs. I mean, that that could go somewhere. I feel like if you're going to pitch like a, a series uh, to some executives, you start there. They're like, "I'm listening." You know, my my pitch would be, "All right, these two goofies go to like a, another realm where there are some hot elves." And like, look, guy, I don't know how you got in here, but uh, you got to go. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess before we move on from that, though, what exactly is a Mordo Angus? I'm very curious about that. Uh, Mordo Angus is what happens when you get a Latin dictionary. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I looked up the words death, and then I looked up the word for fire. So, you know, it's that's pretty much where it comes from. Yeah. Uh, you know, death fire. And I'm sure, like, as somebody who did not study Latin, that makes no linguistic sense. But, you know, for, for our purposes, uh, it, it was it was good enough. Yeah. Okay, the quest for Deathfire. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I did see in a past interview that you used to want to be uh, a comic book artist. Uh, maybe this was a phase after the initial writing. Um, and I think you even had a submission to Marvel. So I'm curious, uh, do you remember anything about what that submission was? Yeah, I do. Um, because it was horrible. Um, <laughs> you know, like the work that I produce now, people uh, have often remarked that it's sort of bizarre and um, sometimes a little absurdist. I've calmed down so much. Um, you know, what I'm doing now is me trying to be coherent. Back then, I was just being strange and, and incoherent and uh, indigestible. And so the, the work that I produced that I pitched to Marvel uh, was called Stymied, and it was about, I can't even begin to explain what it was about. It was about nothing sensible. I was reading a lot of like bizarre uh, comic books. You know anything about comic books at all? Uh, I've read some, mostly sticking to like the DC and Marvel, uh, the ones that, you know, everyone's heard of before. Right. Yeah. I was, I was reading like Flaming Carrot and Paul Pope and Scud, the Disposable Assassin, things that were sort of weird indie comics. I would read these things that were fanciful and Dadaist and and bizarre and thought, Hey, I can do that. And I, I really, I really, really couldn't, but I, I produced three or four scripts. I put them together with artwork that I also produced that was terrible, but you know, I was, I was doing my best and I sent it to, to Marvel. And I, I did get back a letter, you know, that was, um, had Spider-Man on the, the letterhead and I was, uh, it was very brief, you know, it's like, please don't contact us again. Uh, you know, so, <laughs> so we don't know what this is. Uh, How did you, you get know, this so, address? <laughs> it was, it was a hard no. Uh, but yeah, I've been getting hard no's all my life and I, I, I thought it was funny. I, I have it in a file drawer somewhere. That Yeah, that's interesting. And I feel like as a writer, that probably is maybe beneficial, assuming you don't quit and give up writing, to get some of those rejections early on rather than be totally and completely devastated later. 
Right. Well, no, I, I would like to say that, like, I am a practice quitter. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> a lot of these careers that I undertook, you know, whether it was comic books or poetry or whatever, uh, I would pursue it for a while and then give up. And, and fantasy is something I came back to after, you know, quitting. Uh, I guess I gave it up when I was like 16, 17. No, I, I, wrote, I wrote through high school science fiction and fantasy. And then I started, you know, I went to college and, and, decided I was going to be literary as happens to some of us. And, uh, it was a mistake, but it took me about 10 years to figure that out. Okay. Okay. Were, were those the same 10 years that you spent writing poetry? Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. I, I wrote a lot of absurdist texts, uh, some okay. automatic writing, you know, where you get out your typewriter and you put on your William S. Burroughs hat and, and you pretend like you're John Cage and you just go to town and you just do a word <laughs> soup. Uh, yeah, and, and you smoke your unfiltered cigarettes, and you feel like you're doing something, and then you read it a couple of days later, you think, well, that that obviously wasn't it. I, I could do better, and then you would do it again. And you did that for I don't know two or three years before you realize, like, I don't think this is going anywhere. I don't think I'm any good at this, and I don't think anyone else is either. I think this is garbage. And then I got to poetry, so the, you know, there's kind of an intermediate of just bizarro texts, which you know they don't even qualify as stories. They were just. Yeah, just rambles. But again, there's a lot of those. I, I have file drawers full of reams of garbage. If anyone, if I just drop dead suddenly, I hope someone just sets fire to all of that stuff. That should never see the light of day. There's <laughs> nothing good in there. The books of Babel is the first thing I can stand behind and go, yeah, this is this, this makes some sense. Uh, but before that, it's just garbage all the way down to, you know, tw- ten years old or whatever. I mean, in all fairness, I do feel like you can describe garbage all the way down as several of the books that I was required to read in school growing up. So <laughs> that's that's fair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, so I am curious. So all that time spending writing poetry, I know a lot of people comment on your prose. You have a very particular style and I feel like there is that flair of poetry in it. So I'm curious, how do you go about crafting your prose? Uh, I think that... Uh, you know, Virginia Woolf said that that style is essentially like you, you find the rhythm of it, and then that's that style. So, like once you find the rhythm of the language, that that becomes your style. And she said it much more gracefully than that. But the, you know, the idea is that that what poetry taught me is a, a rhythm of writing, which also worked for prose. And so, it's spending a lot of time mulling over the the, the words themselves as particulates, you know, not just as, as sort of building blocks that get you to the, the plot or the point, um, sure. it has served me well, just because I think it, it, when you're trying to describe something that is unusual, you have to find an unusual way to describe it. Um, but it still has to be coherent. And so, you know, poetry kind of, there's lots of different kinds of poetry and I, I've written lots of different kinds of bad poetry. So it's not to say that, 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 that you know, the, the education was without a lot of failure. But it did teach me to appreciate the, the language itself, which, you know, it's easy to skip. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about tropes. There's a lot of discussion about subgenres. There's a lot of talk about uh, plot. And that is important to the genre. But, I mean, at, at, at its base, it's still storytelling. I think the, the importance of language to storytelling is sometimes overlooked. Yeah, no, and I mean, the importance of language and the focus on it is, I think, one of the reasons why. I mean, we have classics like Ursula K. Le Guin, who is constantly lauded for her brilliant prose. I mean, her storytelling as well, but the prose often comes up, you know, decades after works that are written. And, you know, fantasy does have the bad rap occasionally of just, oh, you know, like you said, it's a bunch of tropes. The authors clearly haven't spent a lot of time massaging the craft of prose. But I think that's uh, less and less accurate these days. 
if it was ever accurate, shall we say? Boy, I don't like to paint any genre with a, a broad brush, and I haven't read enough of contemporary fantasy to make any judgment one way or another. I'll say that the things that I was reading in the genre growing up uh, were not as conscious, uh, not so like prose forward as the the stuff that I let, read later on. But you know, there, there were these exemplars, these ex- exceptions, these these incredible talents like Ursula Le Guin. Uh, Mervyn Peake, uh, you know these these writers who uh, wielded the language with purpose and 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 originality. And so, yeah, there is there's absolutely this this unfair bias against the genre. But it's it's like any other any genre that's a popular genre. There there are people who like simple prose, and that's not a that's not a, a character flaw. That's perfectly reasonable uh, and exists for a reason. There's a market for it, and if there's a market for it, and it makes people happy then it's great. Like I have no problem with it. So even if there is, you know, fantasy being written now or back then, you know, that was simpler in its prose, that's not, that's not a flaw. That's not a you know, criticism. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I guess, are you intentional and consciously think about word choice on like the granular level or is it kind of just with that rhythm you were saying, just kind of an instinctual feel now for you? Like how, is there any kind of actual method to it for you? There's a lot of talking to myself. I think that the, the language, you know, is amphibious. It, it, it dwells on the page, but also in the air. And so I, I spend a lot of time just reading the work aloud until it sounds right. When I go back and read the, the books I've written, I see where I gave up, you know, where I, I couldn't quite get it. And that's always super frustrating. So, uh, you know, I, I'm always striving to do a little bit better. But if you lean on it too hard, then it sounds contrived, it sounds clever, it sounds annoying. And so, you know, I, I swing back and forth between trying to take a light hand and just kind of like, you know, get into the rhythm, kind of get into the trance of writing and let it stand. And then other times I'll spend, you know, three days on, on, on a line and then axe it because it's garbage. You know, so it, I, 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 would, I would be a terrible teacher because I don't do anything consistently except for uh, the sort of obsessive quality of trying, you know, and 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 laboring at the thing, and uh, that's that's most of my process. Although, I mean, you can't be that terrible of a teacher, I'm sure. Weren't you actually a teacher for a while? Yeah, yeah, for 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 a, uh, almost a decade, and and but I didn't teach. I did teach a little creative writing, but my my method of teaching creative writing is like you've got to figure out what works for you. Like, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm not here to tell you how to write. I'm here to to talk about some general principles, give you some some you know prompts, some ideas of what you can look for. But uh, I always found you know creative writing uh, as a as a discipline that's taught uh, a little patronizing, and that, that that there's this person who has ascended to excellence in this craft and shall now impart unto you his ignorant followers that um, that secret. And I. I just don't think that's it. I, I think that writing is very personal. It, for me, it took a lot of laboring to figure out like what I wanted it to sound like, how I wanted it to work, and you know, in a semester trying to accomplish that, it's just it's just impossible. And so, you know, you you kind of like give give, give a, a couple of pointers, but the, you know, I think writing is a pretty solitary sort of pursuit, ultimately, not a workshop. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. But some things that 
are tangentially related to writing uh, and definitely not a solitary pursuit. Uh, I know you have been part of a team of fantasy authors who recorded an actual play Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Crit Faced, which, by the way, I think that is possibly my favorite Dungeons and Dragons podcast name, Crit Faced. Amazing. And you each played a character from your respective book worlds. So I'm curious, uh, I mean, what can you tell us about the podcast? What can you tell us about your character? Sure. Well, the the, the name uh, I, I'm I'm 99 sure was coined by the dungeon master uh, Benedict Patrick, who uh, is the showrunner, who you know put the whole thing together and, and deserves all the credit for that. Uh, he's he's just been phenomenal. Um, and and when I started with them, I had never played before, so I had no idea what I was doing. And they, as a group, were very patient and kind of bringing me along, and are still patient with me as I. As I uh, I'm continuously having to remind myself that this is not improv. It is a, it is a, you know, a structured game with rules. Uh, I, um, <laughs> you can tell that I'm a frustrated ham, not, not, a, not, a, not an actor, but just like a, a community theater ham that comes out in the podcast, uh, for, for better or for worse. But the, yeah, the characters were all taken from our, you know, for fantasy writers who are the players, uh, from the, the worlds that we all have written. Uh, and so we kind of developed these characters from, from our, our works. I wanted to uh, come up with, I think, I didn't know this at the time, uh, but I wanted to come up with uh, a character who was pathetic and uh, uh, sort of uh, conceited. And, and I, 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 I didn't, realize at the time I was like, oh, I'm, I'm working through some stuff here. This is like a little bit like therapy too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the best kind of D and D. I know. And the, the, the more I got into, I was like, you know, I keep talking in a funny voice, but I could just use mine because this is a little close to home. You know, it's a, a, a guy who thinks a little too well of himself and uh, is is uh, yeah, kind of an auteur, a bard, of course. Um, but you know, it it, it was. It's we've been doing for like three years, and uh, this campaign it just will not end because we keep going off the rails. But we're having fun. There's so few opportunities right now where I'm in my life, you know, uh, with family obligations, the whole pandemic, uh, to engage other people in some sort of meaningful, creative way. And this has been, uh, you know, just a, a life buoy uh, in, in some some troubled waters. So it's it's really. Uh, one of my favorite things I've ever participated in. Uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. The podcast a- aspect of it is absolutely secondary. You know, I would do it if it wasn't a podcast. I would I would just play with these guys until until I'm, until I'm dead. So yeah, and I I think isn't uh, the podcast actually your second or third campaign? Maybe because you wanted to just play D anD D to begin with, and then decided to record the next one. Yeah, it's it is it's the second campaign that we have done. The first one. Maybe lasted. I don't think it even lasted a year. We got through pretty quick, um, and then someone was like, "Why don't we do Strahd?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, man, whatever." Uh, little did I know how deep this this campaign goes. And so we, uh, yeah, we've been doing it for a while. I don't know if this gets better. If it's just a product of playing it like once a month, I- I'm still like looking up the rule books and and saying like, "Now what do I roll? Like which dice is it? Like you know." <laughs> Uh, so I'm still learning. Yeah, no, and it is a lot. But yeah, highly recommend anyone who wants to check out a very fun podcast full of fantastic fantasy authors, definitely check out Crit Faced. 
So I also want to talk about social media for a moment because I know I'm someone who tends to get completely and totally overwhelmed by social media. Um, and I imagine that as an author, you face significantly more pressure than I do. So how do you find a healthy balance between maintaining that online presence and just, you know, preserving your general sanity? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a really great question. And it's something that I think as a community we should talk about more. I did not get involved in social media before I started trying to self-publish. Uh, and that was on purpose. Like for me, my personality and, and social media do not mix. You know, it, it's gasoline and styrofoam. It is a bad mixture. And I knew that about myself because uh, I think for some people, it is empowering. It really feels like a way to connect. But for other people, it feels endlessly sort of exposing and you know, producing anxiety. And that's what it, it does for me. Uh, so, you know, famous, not famously, but I, I have deleted my uh, social media accounts a couple of times. I think after the Hod King came out was the most recent time that I just went through and, and nuked everything. Uh, and, and a lot of it was just, I was just absolutely overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed by a sense of obligation, overwhelmed by the sense of just being exposed um, in a way that made me uncomfortable. And for me, it feeds that particular neurotic obsessiveness that is really useful and creativity for me. That's why I've kind of channeled it. But once it gets out of there, it's, it's just like a raccoon in the kitchen. You, you just don't want it there. And so I think that, that for me, the way that I'm, I manage social media now is a way that's not really productive in one way because I just don't treat it as social. Um, once I decided like I cannot interact with people in a meaningful way, on this platform. Like I can't make connections and friends. Uh, this is performative. This is a part of like the business that I have to perform that made it easier. But the, the downside of that is like, I just don't engage at all. Like I, I have, I never look at my feed. I don't treat it as like a way, a portal to interact with people in, in a way that I would like, if, if I go to a party back in the days when there were parties, I was a guy standing in the corner looking for the other guy standing in the corner. And then we would talk about kites for two hours. You know, that's my <laughs> personality. Uh, and, I, and I would also be trying to leave the entire time. So I, I'm just, I'm, I'm a, you know, shy private guy. And yeah, so the revelation that, that, that for me, social media is not social. It's just, it's just media was helpful. Um, but it still, it still gets to me, man. I, you know, I think it's like, um, it's one of those things where it's, it's tempting to think you're more important than you are. Sure. You know, if you're a writer with any sort of platform and social media kind of like fans that feeling and then when it recedes or dims or changes, you resent it and you get kind of like panicky, you know, so there's all this sort of psychological stuff. I'm not telling you anything, dude. We all know that social media is a giant, not mistake or problem, but boy, it's a thing. It's a, you know, it's, it's changing yep. the way we interact. It's changing the way we, at least it's changed the way I feel. Was thinking, and so I, I still will probably, um, you know, leave the platforms again at some point just for my well-being. Yeah, I mean, I think I've had like maybe eight or nine posts on Instagram in the last however long Instagram has been a thing. So it's less than one post per year now. I just don't think I have that much stuff going on in my personal life to share to everyone. I don't know. Social media is scary and strange for sure. It, it is. And I, I think that like uh, there are people who take to it and have a great time with it. And just, I, I'm like, wonderful. I don't want to be one of these old guys. that's like, you know, because I don't enjoy this. No one should. If people, <laughs> if it's legitimately bringing them joy and being productive, like 
great. But I think what's kind of maybe problematic about the industry right now is increasingly publishers are leaning on the authors to, to promote themselves, to, to do a lot of the sort of uh, marketing legwork. And so the, the pressure is definitely there to get out there and, you know, uh, have a brand, have a following. And some people can do it and some people, you know, not so much. Yeah, understandable. Well, uh, I know I first came to your work, well, four or five years ago, whenever uh, the self-published fantasy blog-off was a thing and you were entered into it with Sinlin Ascends. And uh, Jared Sharin from Porno Kitsch reviewed Sinlin Ascends. And since then, you've had your series picked up by Orbit Books. So you've seen self-publishing, you've seen traditional publishing. Uh, as someone with experience on both sides of the industry, what are some of the notable differences you found? You, you know, I think the, the thing that's been recently the most remarkable to me is not so much the differences, but the similarities. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and it's just because, like, uh, the problems that I had generally with self-publishing, I'm like, man, I'm having the same problems with publishing. I wonder what the – what is the consistent – uh, thing here what's connecting the it's, it's me you know these things that i do creatively there's these things that i do with sharing my work that make it more difficult than it would have to be so i you know i've realized back when i was self-publishing i was like man I, I really don't like this aspect of self-publishing and then i started publishing with the traditional um you know kind of group and i was like man i don't like this aspect of traditional publishing i'm like this is the same thing I'm I'm the constant here. I'm the problem. So I I, I feel like the the further I get into it, there is just a lot that they they share in common. The bad thing about or the main difference I think between self publishing and, and publishing is uh, with publishing you have more people you can blame, uh, and self publishing <laughs> not so much. You know, and that. But but yeah, you know, I, I said that facetiously because I certainly am only grateful to the team of people and the publisher who have you know given me the opportunities they have but i i think that you know people will talk a lot about the reticence of publishers to take on novel ideas to break new ground the caginess of of the market when it comes to trying new stuff and then the, the relative like libertine environment or you know uh sort of sense when it comes to self-publishing uh, and that is in some way true like there, there is i think some kernel of truth to that but a lot of the people who i've seen succeed in self-publishing have absolutely glommed onto familiar sort of not all of them some of them have glommed onto very familiar um either subgenres or not templates but you know like it's a, it's a recognizable property and so even even that aspect of like oh there's a total creative freedom with self-publishing, in one way there is, but the market is still the market, and and so there's there's that you have to kind of grapple with. It's neat to see things like you know Max uh, Gladstone and 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 Jeff Vandermeer uh, being able to like produce some pretty out there stuff, um, and I really am I'm, uh, that's exciting. And you know, getting the ninth is another thing that's sort of like out of, out of left field. It's very different, and and so publishers do take some some risks. Uh, I've heard there's another uh, series that's a little out there as well. The Books of Babel, the Books of Babel, something like that. Uh, yeah, man, that's risky. There's no way a publisher would ever pick that up. I, I, I think they were just sort of strong-armed into it. They're like, well, he keeps selling these books. Wow, you know, <laughs> I guess we'll take a cut. Um, yeah, they, they had to be convinced. I mean, even when I went uh, to my agent, the first time I ever met with my agent, once I got an agent, 
he said like, okay, so like you've made some, some waves with this books of Babel stuff. What else you got? We're not going to pursue that. We're going to shelf that. And I was like, no, I'm going to finish this series. Like I, I, can you imagine if I had not written the last two books in the series, I would have to change my name. Like I, get, <laughs> I know I don't have like a million readers, but the, 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 the ones that I do have would find out where I live. So, you know, it's, uh, e- even then there was that sort of reticence of like, Oh, I don't, I, are we, are we, do we really want to back this pony? Yeah, no, uh, definitely the market I feel like is kind of this uh, very interesting and unknowable thing, at least from the reader side of things. It sounds like uh, maybe on the other side of the fence, it is also very similar. It is, it is. Yeah, well, uh, so we've been talking a while now. We've hinted at your work, but you're here to discuss the Books of Babel series and specifically the Fall of Babel. Uh, so do you have a pitch for the Books of Babel series? Sure. Um... You know, as often as I've had to do this, I really haven't gotten any better at it. I, I would say it's a, it's about a small man who thinks too much of himself, going to a large building that he thinks too much of, and discovering that neither are very admirable. They're not they're not really wonderful in any way. They're all they're, all, they're both fraught. Him and the building. Uh, and, you know, it's it's sort of like uh, I've said before. It's Dante and Wonderland, sort of a mashup of Dante's Inferno and Alice in Wonderland. It's sort of like. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to Hell. Um, it's it's got these Victorian adventure elements, uh, but the truth is, it, it's it's just a it's it's a strange sort of rambling yarn. It is an adventure story. It's about a guy who goes to a big building and immediately loses his wife and and spends a lot of time looking for her and then not and then looking for her again and then getting confused and you know it just goes on and on. It just goes on and on. <laughs> Man, I don't know why they don't let me pitch my own books. See, I love seeing you have this challenge with pitching the book uh, when you're the most familiar with it, because I have such a hard time telling friends what this story is about when I want them to read it, right? Because I'm like, hey, there's this series you should try. What's it about? Well, <laughs> how much time do you have? <laughs> yeah. I, for, for me, like the books are this omnibus of, of ideas and thoughts and, uh, you know, questions and, and just flights of fancy. And, and so, you know, the criticism that there is an element of disjointedness uh, or episodicness to the series is perfectly deserved. And, and that's just a, a product of like, uh, you know, how I wrote them. Uh, they, they were written in a way just to serve me, which is a dumb thing to do. Like you're supposed to write books to serve a reader. I mean, everyone always told me that, but I was just like, no, nah, I'm just going to write what I'm currently presently interested in. And this is the result. So, you know, uh, yeah, for better or for worse. Um, I think that, that what, what holds the books together, hopefully are the characters. I put a lot of work into developing characters who I thought were nuanced and believable and, fallible but but also uh, aspiring like they had something in them that 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 was desiring of more uh, from themselves and from their world and that's something i wanted from the books i wanted these characters who i could um you know find something relatable uh in them so yeah i, I guess they're the, they're the glue to the to the thicket of of ideas and thoughts yeah and i mean We've talked about the prose, how that's something readers talk about a lot. I think the other thing that readers talk about all the time is the characters. Um, I know I have fallen in love with quite a few of the characters, especially as you've expanded the cast of really diving into their backstories, their personalities, their development throughout the series. So 
I'm curious, what's just your general process for creating a new character? And perhaps more importantly, how do you get a reader invested in that character? Uh, yeah. Hmm. Huh. Well, you know. The easy questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what makes a character worthwhile in my estimation is their foibles and their flaws. And so when I start off with a character, I usually try to figure out what weirdnesses, what quirks, what anxieties or, uh, you know, um, flaws make them relatable. I, I guess like when I was growing up, and I read a lot of fantasy uh, and I, I was reading a lot of kind of boilerplate sword and sorcery fantasy. I had a hard time always, almost always connecting with the hero because they were so heroic um, and their, their flaws were always sort of those, those false flaws of they just didn't know that they were good enough or, you know, they, they, they just didn't believe in themselves yeah. or um, they didn't know that the power was within. And I'm like, oh, God, like, this is so irritating. And, and so, you know, my characters kind of um, begin with, with, with flaws, which is one reason I think some people are like, well, I don't like this guy at all. I'm like, I don't either. Like, he kind of starts off a little rough. He's full of himself. He's smug. He's, he's condescending. But what's wonderful about flaws is then you can break them down. You can you can expose that person, that character to something which makes them confront these weaknesses for what they are, which is these vulnerabilities. They 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 suffer some consequence from these these um, flaws, uh, and then you can have them kind of like uh, have some self discovery and build uh, some some new internal architecture to, to confront and, and reform. And that to me is interesting, you know, because that's, that's the, the life that I've, I've lived as the people that I know, the, the family that, that I inhabit. So I think the, the characters kind of begin that way. And then th there's some characters just who aren't, and this is like one of those things that I remember writers would say when I was younger and I would just want to throw a book at them. They say like, you know, sometimes a character just shows up and starts talking. You just write it down. And like, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's such horseshit. I hate that. Um, but it sometimes happens. Like sometimes you'll have these characters just, you know, like uh, in the books, there's a character, Byron, who's the Sphinx's secretary. Uh, he was not in any of my draft, like my, my outlines, not any of my plans. He just showed up and started talking. And I thought like, well, this is, I like this. This is fun. This is entertaining. I want to see what this guy goes, what, what he's, what he's going to do next. And he was not supposed to be in the third book. And he certainly was not supposed to be in the fourth book. And he just, kept hanging around he kept like insisting and, and he has always been the easiest to write for that reason so I, and I, you know so I, I guess the short answer is like yeah there's a process for it and also sometimes there isn't you know right yeah i think my uh very dumbed down way of processing some of what you said there is that I feel like sometimes you can get really excited about a character that has all of these strengths and seeing how those strengths can really have them kick ass in certain situations. Or you can love how devastated you are by a character having all these flaws and having their own ass kicked by their flaws. And I feel like uh, those are the stories that I tend to fall in love with more. Yeah, and I, and and both have value. I, I mean, mm. I would say like after I finished my you know degree in, in literature, I'd read all of these books about all of these sad sacks, all these you know crumpled <laughs> humans. I was like, oh, give me some heroes. And so I, th there's different times in different people's lives. There's different yep. things that you want for different reasons. Um, but you know, it's my own creative process. I think if someone asked me to write just a straight hero that'd be an interesting 
exercise, I wonder what I would do. <laughs> I, I, I think it would end up being like sardonic or ironic or something. I don't know if I could do it. Well, I guess kind of taking a little bit step back and talking about the genesis of the Books of Babel series. So I know the name Sinlin was originally inspired by a poem. Uh, what can you tell us about that poem and why did it inspire you? Uh, so it's uh, Morning Song of Sinlin by Conrad Aiken who was uh, a poet laureate of the, of the U.S., I think probably the first poet laureate, although it wasn't called that back then. He wrote this poem that sort of, this meditation from the point of view of a person who was sort of like Thomas Simmons from the books. It's a, a kind of a stuffed shirt who is a little fastidious, a little fussy. He conceives of the world and the cosmos in these very private cloister terms. So he's just like getting ready for his day, but he's having all these sort of like grandiose supernal thoughts. And it was, it's just a very interesting, it, it, it definitely is the genesis for Simon, the character. So yeah. And, and the language is beautiful. It's, it, it's, I, I, do you, do you read any poetry at all? Uh, I, I don't much. I did actually read the morning song. No, of Simlin. You. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw this smile and this contentment and I thought this is a person who doesn't read poetry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> If I was going to compare it to anything, there's a later uh, poem that's called uh, by T.S. Eliot called The Love Song of Jeff of Proof Rock. This is sort of that poem, but without the horny undertones. And that'll make sense to nine people. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's worth reading. You know, it's, it's uh, yeah, that's it. I mean, and it seems like a poem that's had a pretty interesting impact on literature as well, because I know uh, A Swiftly Tilting Planet by Madeline Langle actually came from that poem as well. That's right. Yeah. And so given that you started as a poet and Simlinson's was partially inspired by that poem, I wasn't surprised to learn that the Books of Babel were originally conceived as sort of a, I think, a collection of prose poems. Uh, so how did you go from that initial conception to the fantasy novels that you have today? Ah, uh, man, I, you know, it, it, I think anytime I revisit that, that moment, I have like a different impression of what actually happened. It, it was definitely <laughs> just born out of frustration. You know, um, I've been doing poetry for writing poetry for a long time. Doing poetry sounds like you were like snorting something in a bathroom. I was doing some poetry. I was a little high. So I, I've been writing poetry for a while, submitting it, not really getting anywhere, getting frustrated. And I started reading um, some new stuff for me, which was uh, Italo Calvino, His Invisible Cities, which is this beautiful work. It is sort of an imaginary travelogue or travelogue of imaginary places. Um, and it's written as a prose poem. And I just thought like, once again, I can do that, even though, boy, I really couldn't do that. So I set about trying to do that. And uh, yeah, I got, I don't know, some pages into it. And I realized oh, that I was doing exactly what I had done when I was, you know, 23, which is just typing, you know, just putting words down and trying to be clever, trying to sound smart, which is like the, the, the surest way to sound dumb. Like, you know, just trying to put on that, that uh, poet hat again, even though I was trying to rip it off. So anyway, I, yeah, I tossed it all. And then I started reading uh, Victorian adventure stories that I had read in my youth. And I was like, my God, this stuff is racist. And I was reading this when I was 12. I had no idea. Uh, like, this stuff is awful. So there's that. I mean, like, you know, I don't want to gloss over any of that. Uh, but, you know, I did like kind of like the adventure quality of it, uh, the, the, the sense that the world was not fully known, that there were still things could, that could be discovered 
that the the horizon was you know this this giant question that uh, just beckoned to people. And so I wanted to write something like that. And then we once you decide like I want to write this sort of voluminous thing, then you need a character to be sort of like a, a, a flashlight or a magnifying glass to kind of like begin to investigate that amorphous aspirational blob that you have. And so that's where Thomas Simlin came in. He really, you know, the reason he comes to the tower is so I could approach the tower. The reason he starts at the bottom is so I could start at the bottom as a sort of um, uh, explorer with him. Um, and so that's, that's, I guess, did I answer that question? <laughs> I think so. Approach and answer? Okay, well. Yeah. Reasonably sure. Yeah, but so... I mean, you've been working on the Books of Babel series for close to or possibly even over a decade at this point. Uh, so what does it feel like finally closing out the series? <laughs> Somebody a couple of months ago asked me, like, oh, just very candidly, like, so is it worth it? I was like, how, could you, how dare you? How dare you? And I was like, I, don't, I have no idea. I have no idea. I think... I've grown a lot as a writer, and I'm really grateful to this whole process for that. It's allowed me to, you know, meet wonderful people and do things I never would have done otherwise. So I, I, I feel very grateful. It's like the overwhelming feeling that I have, and pretty kind of amused and and a little, I don't know. I mean, it's just. The other thing I, I say, I feel is nervous. I, <laughs> I don't think writers talk about this a lot either. It is easier to affect indifference to reception and confidence. And it's it's a little dicier to be like frank with like, I, I hope people like it. You know, <laughs> like, I hope that they think it's worth it. Never mind what I think. So hopefully people will feel like their time has not been wasted and they have been enjoyed this very strange journey that we've all been on. Um, and one of the reasons that I'm so assiduously writing something new right now is I was like, man, I have to have something else under my feet so that if people are like disappointed with this thing, I'm not completely exposed. I can be like, well, yeah, yeah, but that's, uh, that's in the past. Now I'm writing this new thing. This is a good thing that I'm working on. Sheesh. You know, so nervous, nervous, grateful um gassy i don't know like the usual yeah yep sounds about right um but yeah so what can you tell us about that current work in process i think it's called the hexologists yeah yeah that's that's the idea that's something that's the name um the phew, i've always really liked mystery and detective sort of you know stories uh and i've always really fancied myself as somebody who would be good at writing those things i'm not sure that's the case but I'm pretending it is. So I wanted to try sort of like a fantasy mystery piece that is going to be a standalone. It's going to be more like, um, it's going to be less ambitious, like shorter, more contained. I wanted it to be a little bit lighter in tone. I keep saying that. And every time I sit down to write, I'm like, and the black smog rolled in. And I'm like, oh, this, is not, this is not as light as I wanted. I don't know if it's possible to write something light right now. I don't know if, Maybe this is an interesting time to be writing something light or to be aspiring to write something light. Yes, yes. But you know, in, in many ways, it's sort of of a brand because it's still got a lot of heart. The characters are the uh, essential quality to the story. They're more important than the plot. I like the characters. I think the characters have likable qualities. There's humor. Uh, there's a lot of bizarreness, you know. Uh, it's the first time I've written about dragons since I was 12. So, you know, I, I wanted to jump on the dragon bandwagon right when everybody's like ready to, to, to move on. That's what I'm going for. 
I want I want there to be like um, an article published in Tor that's like dragons are dead, dragons are over, <laughs> and that's when I want my book to drop. Um, you know, so there you go. I'm just I, again. I, I think that the way that I create is is just like I'm making a stew. Here's what I got in the refrigerator. We're gonna put it in the pot and see what it tastes like. So that's, I'm in that that stage right now, putting things in the pot. Sure. I mean, I I've heard the words. Art Deco thrown out. I've heard uh, mystery. I've heard a king being baked into a cake. So definitely yes. very curious to see how this stew ends up turning out. We'll see. Um, yeah. Um, uh, hopefully I can find a willing partner to bring it to market. Uh, somebody uh, who has faith in the idea. We'll see. Yeah. Um, well, so what do you sort of alluded to this, but what do you hope your brand as a writer is at this point? You know, now that you're working on your second series that's going out to the public, what do you hope your readers have come to expect when they pick up a new Josiah Bancroft novel? Uh, hopefully, the, the willing to learn uh, will sing for money. No, I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I think that with people, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I have no idea what I want my work to be as genuine. I don't want it to be cynical. I don't want it to be easy for me. I want it to be genuine. And I think that people who enjoy that, even if it's rough, even if it's not always uh, light or easily digestible, will appreciate that. Yeah, I just, I, I, I'm fine with people being, people saying, I get what he's going for. I don't like it. Uh, I don't like him, but I believe that he is, he's really trying. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> he's not phony at the end. He's, he's really giving it the old college try. Well, you know, is it, is it a brand? <laughs> like, like, like a, an insurance company. Like, we're really trying here, guys. We really are. Like, I don't think I would go with them. I, I need to work on this. I don't know. Well, hey, compared to how you're describing your earlier work and now how you're describing this, it sounds like you're headed in a positive direction. So I'm looking forward to this being, you know. 10 times as fabulous. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, but I, I like all these food analogies. I feel like we're talking like a fine port or something. We're like, you know, this is uh, whimsically dark and pleasantly satirical. And uh, overall, it's just complex. And I like it. Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, uh, I think uh, this is this, this olive still has a pit in it. I've been chewing on it for a while. It's, it's ruining my teeth. That's that's sort of like where, where I am in the stage <laughs> of creativity. Uh, yeah. But no, I, yeah, I, if if I get to to publish no more books, yeah, privileged, grateful, very much so. It's been great. And uh, with all that you have learned over this past decade, uh, or I mean, longer that you've been writing, uh, how are you approaching the writing process now, either from the craft side of things or the business side of things, or just, you know, your daily routine? Um, well, you know, um, as, a, as, a, as a man with a family yourself, you understand, process is a negotiation. And so ideally, it would be one thing, but practically it's another. My family, especially my, my little girl, you know, comes first. Uh, so right now, uh, I'm, I'm sort of molding my process around the opportunities that I have to work. My goal is to write, you know, every day during the week, the weekend, we generally doing like family stuff. Uh, for a long while, my goal was like to write a thousand words a day. That was going well for a while, but we've had a lot of sick days recently. You know, so it's a lot of practical stuff. 
I don't think that my process has changed that much, much because my process has always just been one of obsession. Uh, I don't, I don't really need a structure or schedule. My problem is sleeping at night. So like I, I, I wake up at one in the morning and I'm like, oh, I got to write this dialogue down. I just had this idea and I'll you know, be up for 30 minutes writing uh, some dialogue that the next day I'll look at it and be like, I really should have just gone to sleep. Like, I don't think this is necessary. But it's, just, it's always going. I get out of the shower and I have these ideas. I'm driving the car. I, you know, I have like a dictaphone. So for me, the process is this sort of sprawling, messy obsession, this fascination. And so in that way, it's, it's, it's useless. It's useless. <laughs> you know, I can't, I, yeah, uh, I wish it was more of a, a, a regimen because um, then it'd be a little bit more predictable, but I feel like uh, for me, creativity is just, you throw your hands in the air and you run around in a circle for a couple of years. And then when you stop, you have a book. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's worked out relatively well so far. Uh, four books published through Orbit in the last four, five years, three years. What is time? I have a very hard time keeping track of the years now. Yeah, they published Simon Ascends in paperback at the start of 2018. Okay. There we go. Okay, so almost almost four years at this point. Almost four years, yeah. Yeah, well, are there any good books that you've read lately that you can recommend? I'm always curious to hear the answer to this question. Uh, you know, the, the last thing that I read, I'm actually right now rereading uh, Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Gwynn. That's when we were talking about her earlier. I had read it when I was um, in college. But, you know, like, I don't know, like, if, uh, I, I was reading a lot in college, and I don't think I really absorbed it. And so I was sort of thinking about it after someone mentioned it, and I was like, you know, I don't think I really, I don't think I really gave that book the attention it was due. And so I started rereading that now, 20 years later. And it's like what you were saying about her prose. It's, it's, it's upsetting how good she was at writing. It really just it bothers me. She's so good. She's such a wonderful writer. And the, the themes of the book, the, it's, it's, it's absolutely stellar. So I'm really enjoying that, and and yeah, hating it a little bit too. I'm like, you know, you gotta you gotta leave the rest of us some some good lines. And then I'm also uh, just finishing up Connie Willis's uh, "To Say Nothing of the Dog," which is so full of wit and uh, so um, full of humanity. It's a great book. Have you have you read that one? I have not, but I've heard nothing but wonderful things about it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a good book to read right about now because it's not sometimes you read books that are uh i think human and ultimately sort of uh, uplifting and filled with wit and it sounds like it doesn't have any like shadow to it or any content that's definitely not the case here but yeah she's she's a wonderful writer she's kind of got that dickensian sort of uh, aspect to her um description of things that i love it's it's really Really beautiful stuff. Those are the two things I've. And in, in the spring, I read um, Mr. Pie by Mervyn Peak, and that was similarly fabulous. Very strange, very strange, brief, strange, but but fabulous. Um, how about you? What, 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 what have you been reading? Have you got something to recommend? Ooh, um, <laughs> you know. I read so much, but every time someone asks me that question, I'm like, hey, you know what? What is a book? What is book? What is read? <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think. Uh, most recently, I finished reading. Uh, there was a young adult trilogy. I think historical fantasy would be the genre. Uh, the Gold Tier Trilogy by Ray Carson, um, which I really enjoyed. Uh, great hmm. kind of 
sort of Wild West, where each book is structured differently in the trilogy, where you've kind of got like your adventure and hardship, you've got your heist novel, you've got your oh. uh, trying to overthrow the evil lord and escape kind of uh, storylines. So I liked how that was structured. It was a lot of good fun. I think I read all three books in less than a week, which is very unusual for me. That's awesome. Yeah, so very much enjoying that. I think give it a look. Yeah. Not as weird or out there or prosy as some of the books that you've mentioned, but I do think it is quite fun. That's my brand. There it is. Weird, <laughs> out there, and prosy. That's it. Let's go with that. There that's, you go. That's the All one. right. Okay. Just, yep. just take that, splice that into whatever garbage I was saying before. Go with that. <laughs> Add that to the merch <laughs> store. Weird, out there, and prosy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so one way I always like to close out these interviews, Josiah, is just asking, what is one thing that you are excited about right now? Oh, yeah, I was going to look into that and come up with an answer. Uh, <laughs> what a truly spectacular question to ask right now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> because like, the answer is like, I don't know, like normalcy? Is that a thing? Can you look forward to normalcy? Is it sleep? Is that a... Um, Recently, I did uh, discover, I, I, I love music, uh, and I discovered a, a new album that I'm just now forgetting the name of. Oh, oh, hold on. I thought it was. So, um, Caroline Polachek is a musician that I'd never heard of. And then someone on Twitter sent me a picture of her, the cover of her album, Pang, P-A-N-G, and said, oh, this looks like Valletta. And I was like, hey, that sort of looks like Valletta. That's interesting. And so I would just like listen to that attached song. I was like, wow, this is totally up my alley. Like, I, 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 it's, it's, uh, the entire album is amazing. I ran out, I, I, I bought it, and then I bought it on vinyl, and I've listened to it obsessively ever since. It's poppy, but uh, also really weird musically and i love it when you, you, you find an artist who is just experimenting and obviously like you know got their own vision and not just handing it over to a producer and saying like you make me sound good like she is doing something here and it shows up the entire album it's this coherent piece and so when i would discover like a new like album like that i definitely get very excited and i'm i'm still um really enjoying that one yeah, no, I uh, think I'm probably going to check that out right after this interview. Do you, I mean, do, do, do you like kind of like poppier stuff? I don't know, going to be up your alley? I, I, I don't really have a good idea for what my taste in music is, to be honest. Uh, normally, I'll throw up Spotify and I'll do like create radio based on this song, listen until I find another song I like, and then do create radio based on this song. And it takes me down some really interesting rabbit holes. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, I should I should just go ahead and get Spotify and stop messing around with vinyl. But, uh, you know, I'm old. <laughs> well, Josiah, I think that's pretty much a wrap. This has been such a lovely chat. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, no, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to me. Uh, um, I don't know. What would you call it? Just jabbering? Pontificating? I don't know. Running off of the mouth. Thank you for listening to me. I... Can you tell me I'm lonely? I just, I'm just so grateful to talk to somebody. You're not a three-year-old. Like you, you're, you're a person. <laughs> oh, let's call it self-deprecating brilliance and go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. You can find Josiah Bancroft on Twitter as Bancroft Josiah or at his website, thebooksofbabel.com. The Books of Babel is a series near and dear to our hearts at the Fantasy Inn. We hope you love it as much as we do. 
As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We've got exclusive episodes, video interviews, and more. Or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.